Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We have... We have been looking the last few weeks, and rightfully so, at the Christmas story and how God worked through the birth of Christ to fulfill so many promises that he had made. We looked at Emmanuel, God with us, that God dwells with his people, that he stepped out of eternity, he stepped out of heaven into flesh so that he may fulfill the promise of a Messiah who would save. We see. We looked at Uh, the story of the wise men and how God looked at a bigger picture and how God began to make provisions for this child, how he made provisions for this family that didn't even know they were in danger. And in so doing, fulfilled all of these prophecies that had been made for beforehand. We looked last week at the promise of peace um, and and how God brings into our lives this, this great peace, not peace in the sense of calmness, not this peace in the sense of stillness, but rather a peace that is much greater than that, a peace between him and us, a peace that could only be made possible through an eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And so we've looked this past month back at that event, and rightfully so, the grand event that Christmas is, but now we look forward to the promises that he has made before us. Because he told us when he left us, I'm coming back for you. He told us, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He told us over and over again that this life is a wisp. This life is short. In the grand scheme of eternity, it goes by in a flash. So there is much more that we look forward to. So that's what we look for. That's what we're looking at today in Revelations chapter 21. Hopefully you found that by now. If you are able, would you please stand with us as we read the word of God this morning? Chapter 21, starting in verse 1, going through verse 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And behold, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we, as we celebrate this Christmas season, the birth of your son and 
as we have celebrated and continue to celebrate all that he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, as we celebrate the gospel and what it means to us, as we celebrate with family and with friends and with church family, Father, let us remember all that lies ahead of us as well. Let us remember that this life is short. Let us remember that you have gone before us to create a much grander eternity. That this is not our home, but our home is yet to come. Lord, may that change how we live. May it change how we think and what we do. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Revelation is an interesting book, and Lord willing, someday we will sit down and we will do a whole series on Revelation. But, yes, I know there are some of you that are very excited about that. Trust me, if Lord willing, I'm here for 15 years, at some point we will do the book of Revelation. <laughs> so, some of you are going, 15 years? I thought you were going to be here forever. Okay, we'll move on beyond that. Uh, some of you are going, 15 years, really? <laughs> um, but Revelation's an interesting book. It's a lovely book. And it's written to Christians. It's written to believers to remind them of the promises that Christ made. It's written to them to help them to understand that the victory has been won. And we're going to get to that more. And verse 21 is the climax of all that. Really, it's the climax of, of the story. Like we read all, from Genesis through when we get to chapter 1. And God says, this is how it's going to end. This is what's going to happen. And it's glorious. It's exciting. It's something that we should read and contemplate over. And you're going to hear me say that more than once today. We should camp out here once in a while and just marvel at what God is going to do. Marvel at what lies ahead of us. And so this morning, we're going to take just a brief look. We're not going to spend a great deal of detail here, but we're going to take a brief look at, verse 20, at chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. The first thing that we see here is that everything is new. Everything is new. And part of that is that there is no more corruption. There is no more corruption. It says there in verse 1 that he has created a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Why did they need to pass away? Why did that first creation need to go? Because it has been corrupted. Sin has entered into the picture and it has infiltrated everything that we understand to the point that we don't even think about it anymore. We don't even contemplate all the time and, and we take for granted the fact that sin is part of our lives and that there are consequences to it. We take for granted the corruption that has entered into creation and yet we see it all the time. See that corruption in the animals and the plants and the struggle for life that they go through and the constant life and death that happens in, in creation around us. There's no peace in that. If you don't believe me, you should watch National Geographic once in a while okay, and see lions killing other things and crocodiles grabbing things out of the water. It's not peaceful. okay. There's great corruption in it. Everything dies. We see it in our society. As society continues to spiral away from God and deeper into chaos, we see the corruption in our own bodies. Our own bodies were not made. These bodies were not made for all of eternity. These bodies will fail us. These bodies fail us daily. 
They need rest. They need sustenance. They need things to keep them going. They're susceptible to all kinds of diseases. And ultimately, these bodies will fail us completely. It's corruption. It's not the way that it was intended to be. When God created everything, he looked at creation and he said, it is good. And yet man made a choice. And he walked away from all of that. And he didn't believe God. And because of that, all of this other stuff has entered in. And here in 21, God says, that has all been removed. It's all going to be taken away. No longer will we worry about those things, but rather we will live in a place as it was intended to be. And I've got to be real careful because I'll jump ahead here. Second, we see not only is there no more corruption, but there's no more chaos. This is a, a, a tidbit that's easy to miss. It says there, after he talks in verse 1, after he talks about the first heaven and the first earth, he talks about that there was no more sea says that the sea was no more. Now, depending on which commentary you read, whether this is literal or figurative, whether it literally in the new heaven, new earth, there is no more sea, literally, there's no more large body of water, or whether it's figurative, it's a picture. Either way, to understand this phrase, to understand this completely, we must understand that for the writer, for John, for the society that he was living in, for many of the cultures that he was speaking to, the sea was a place of chaos. It was a place of corruption. It was a place of rebellion against the normal. We even see this in Scripture. We see in Daniel as he is prophesying, where does the beast come from? The beast comes out of the sea. We see the creatures come out of the sea. It's a place of rebellion. It's a place of death even a lot of times in scriptures and in culture, the cultures of this time. We spoke earlier about Genesis and that it was a perfect thing and then man sinned and corrupted. But we would be remiss if we did not remember that there was one of rebellion. Satan himself was the tempter to Eve and convinced her that surely God did not mean what he said. Surely God did not say what they thought they heard. Surely it was different. There was one who was acting in rebellion against what God called good. Even to this day, you and I, whether we are aware of it or not, are constantly in a battle with the forces of evil. We are constantly striving against the one who would tempt us to walk away from what the Lord has said, the one who wants to convince us that the Lord really didn't make those promises, that the Lord really didn't say that, that surely he meant something different, that surely the word of God is outdated, surely it has no place in today's culture, surely it has no significance to us. Daily we are met with chaos and temptation and rebellion. But John tells us, in his revelation, that there will come a day when there is no more chaos. No more corruption, no more chaos. That we will live in a place that is in order. Where the one true God is high and lifted up and all will obey him. There will be no more rebellion. It's a marvelous thing to think about. Third thing we see here early in the passage is that all will be as it was meant to be. 
Verse 2, it says, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I like to make fun of Hallmark movies. Because basically there are two Hallmark movies. The first Hallmark movie goes like this. A man finds a girl. They're obviously meant to be. But then something catastrophic happens and they get mad at each other and they walk away from each other. But by the end of the movie, something great happens and they come back together and everything ends as it's supposed to be. Then there's the sequel. A girl finds a boy. And it's obvious that they're meant to be. And then something catastrophic happens and they break up and they're mad at each other. And then something great happens and she gets the boy at the end and all is as meant to be. Those are the two Hallmark movies. There's no others. Okay? Some of you are going to throw fruit at me afterwards. But those are it. Okay? And I, I like to make fun of them. My mom used to make me watch them all the time. It, it scarred me for life. Okay? However, the greatest Hallmark movie ever written is in Scripture. Because God created man to have a great relationship with him, to have this. They were meant to be together. God with his people, they were supposed to be together. And yet something awful and destructive happened when sin entered the world. And at that point, they were enemies. They didn't like each other very much. But then something great happened. God created, God created a way through Jesus Christ for us to come back together. God had a plan this whole time. And now, here in Revelation, we see that everything comes back together the way that it was meant to be forever and ever and ever. My, my wife likes to comment on different television shows when they get to the ending and the couple comes together. And you're like, but what happened here? And what happened here? And what happened? And you're like, yeah, we don't know that they actually stayed together forever. Who knows what happened? But here we are promised that this union never ends, that this marriage never ends, that God and his people will dwell together forever. What a remarkable story this is. What a remarkable plan he has put together. And this dwelling together, that's the second, that's where John begins to focus next. God and his people together, dwelling together. You see there in Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice saying, from, loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's amazing. Like, nowhere else in scripture do we see God dwelling with people like this. Certainly there are moments you know, Moses got to see the backside of God in his glory, but just for a fleeting moment, we see moments like at, in Exodus at the mountain where the glory of God descends on the mountain to give Moses the law. We see moments like that, but never do we see the full dwelling of God with his people because he would melt them like it would not be a good situation for us because we aren't made to dwell like that with a holy God. And yet in heaven with new bodies in a place that's perfect, in a place with no corruption and no rebellion, we will dwell with the one who created us. We will see his glory. We will know his presence in a way like we never have before. I love what it says in verse 23, if you skip down the chapter a little bit. It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. But its light will, light, will 
By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Think about that. Think about what it means to dwell with the creator of all the universe. What it means to know him. What it means to know his will without question. I I can't even begin to understand that. I want to. I want to know him this way. I can't wait to know him this way. It goes beyond the, the emotions that we feel when we're separated from a loved one. Melissa and I, when we first started to date, we were about 12 hours away from each other by car, and it was an excruciating drive, and you could fly, but that was taking your life into your own hands very literally um, because, as you can imagine, airplanes in Madagascar aren't always reliable. And so there was always this longing to actually be with her. Facebook was great. FaceTime was fantastic. Skype was a wonderful invention. But at some point, it's like, this girl that I love, I actually want to be in the same room with her. Like, I don't want to just talk over a computer screen. That pales in comparison to what our desire should be to dwell with the creator of all the universe, with the lover of our soul, with the one who died for us. God dwells with us. And then he does something else incredible. It says in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God not only dwells with us, but he removes all sorrow. We think of sorrow as an inevitability, like it's just going to happen. We say things like, well, you just haven't lived long enough to experience that. That's not a good thing. We think of people passing away, and it's like, yeah, that's what happens. We think of disease, and we're like, yeah, we all get sick. We think of heartbreak. We've all been through that. And yet God draws a picture for us. God makes an assurance to us that are believers that all of that will be gone. All things, all of those things will have passed away. All of those things will be removed from us. Can you imagine a world like that? Can you imagine an eternity like that? That's why when we think about the sorrows of this world, we take them seriously. They are hard for us. They're difficult for us. But to the best of our abilities, we try to put them in the context of all eternity. They are short-lived. They're temporary. We cannot allow ourselves to be overcome by them, though as difficult as that may be, because we are reminded that if we are believers, that if we are sons and daughters of the Most High, that there will come a day when we will no longer deal with that, when it will be removed from us. Thirdly, we see here an eternal promise in this second set he says there in verse 5 and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new also 
he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life, the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son or daughter. It's quite a picture, quite a promise. I hope that as we read that, that you heard that it is done. It should recall to mind the statement of Christ on the cross. It is finished. The victory has already taken place. The victory has already been accomplished. The promise has been assured. God has put his mind to this. God has put his mind to dwelling with his people for all of eternity in this place we call heaven. And it will happen. He promises it. It, He has completed it. He has made sure that it will happen. And it is an eternal promise. I love what he says. I love what the word says here. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. He gives us, he promises us eternity. Water of life. That should recall some teachings of Christ as well. Water that causes us never to be thirsty again. Water that satisfies for all of eternity. And it is not something that we buy. It is not something that we earn. It is not something that we can accomplish. But rather it is a gift from him. It is an eternal promise. All of these things are glory. All of these things are things that we should contemplate and dwell upon. To remind us that we have much lying before us. All of these things should lead us to worship. And yet there is one more reminder in this passage. One more thing that we must not read quickly through. One final warning. In verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. By the way, this is not a checklist we shouldn't look at this list and go, well, I don't do this. Well, I don't do that. Well, I don't, I don't accomplish that. Well, I don't da, da 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 We should understand that what he's talking about is all who rebel, all who sin. And that includes each one of us if we have not put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, there are those who will dre- reject this gift. There are those who will reject God's offer of grace. And for them, there is a different promise. A different reminder in this passage that God's grace is in perfect balance with his judgment. God's grace is in perfect balance with his judgment. God is full of grace. He is full of mercy and he extends that to all of us. But for those that turn away, he will give, he will judge righteously, he will give what has been earned. Paul in Romans makes this picture of the wages of sin or death. And the idea there is that just like you and I, when we go to work, there's an agreed upon wage. There's agreed upon uh, thing that is going to be given back and we return for some act of service or work. And for that person not to give, for that boss or that 
lord or that master not to give that wage would be wrong. In, in the same way, we have earned the second death. We have earned the consequences of our sin. And God, though God extends grace, there will be those that reject it, and for them they will receive what they have earned. We should read that and be reminded again and again that our mission here is not done. We should be reminded that there, this is the reason that we support the IMB, support the cooperative program. This is the reason that we should go across the street to our neighbors. This is the reason we should talk to our coworkers. This is the reason that we should befriend the lady that works at Dairy Queen and the guy that runs the shell station because they may not know the promise of the first seven verses of this passage. They may not know the hope that God gives. They may not know the assurance of eternity in paradise with Him. Theirs is not a Hallmark movie, not in the least. It is something quite different. We must go. We must share. So what do we do in light of all of this? We wait with anticipation. We wait with anticipation. We wait for what's to come. This morning, as I said earlier, we should camp out in chapter 21 of Revelation. We should sit there and read this passage to ourselves. Read it to our families. Remind ourselves of what God is doing in our lives. Remind ourselves of of what His second coming means. Remind ourselves of what eternity is and that this life is just but a glimpse of all that is to come next. Remind ourselves not to be too entangled with all that's here. Remind ourselves that this is not home. We should camp out here. We should allow this passage to lead us to great worship. We should allow this passage to lead us to honoring the name of the God Most High. We should allow this passage to change how we live. Because our waiting is not a call to do nothing. It's not a call to do nothing. It's not that kind of waiting. It's not doctor's office waiting. In fact, in Thessalonians, Paul, in the first letter of the Thessalonians, Paul begins to talk about the second coming of the Lord and how grand that's going to be and how great that's going to be and how we're to look forward to that and how we're to live our lives in, in thought of that coming and thought of that great promise. But then in 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians, it's a little different. In 2 Thessalonians, the people that had read the first letter, seemingly some of them had kind of taken it too far. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul says, you've taken it too far. You have looked at heaven and the eternity and the coming of Christ, and you've said, then why do anything? And he says, because that's not what you're supposed to do. You are given work to do. You're to support your family. You're to support yourself to earn a good wage, to earn a, 
what is fair, to do the work that has been given to you, not only to support yourself, not only to, to live, but to be do the work that is given in Scripture, to live this life the way He intends you to, for His glory, because it is preparation for all that is to come next. How do we know what that looks like? We devour this. How do we know how to wait in that manner? We study this and then we do it. How do we know how to worship God in light of all of heaven? We read. We meditate. We pray over this word. As we step into a new year, kind of a fresh beginning, a fresh start, I pray that you will look to this word, that you will make a commitment to say, I want this to be my life's blood. I want this to be my instruction manual. I want to follow this wherever it may take me because this is my preparation for all that is to come, for the glory that he is preparing this is how I wait. This is what I do. I'm going to ask our praise team to come back up. We're just going to have a time of response this morning. For many of you here that are believers, I pray that, that you think about all of eternity. You think about the greatness that God is preparing. That you think about a place of no corruption and no chaos. A place of dwelling with God, a place of no sorrow, a place of no goodbyes, a place of no illness, and that you think about all that God has done to make that possible in your life, that how he has transformed your heart, how he has called you, how he has saved you, and this morning you are led to great worship with us this morning. For others of you that have never put your faith and trust in God, you don't know this assurance, you don't know, I pray that this morning pray that you would call out to him ask him to hear you ask him to be your savior ask him to forgive you of your sins put your faith and trust in him and then follow we're here to talk with you about that we'd love to talk with you about that if you have more questions this morning though you respond the way that the word is speaking to you let me pray father we come before you and Fathers, we think about the greatness of all of eternity with you. It is mind-blowing. We can't comprehend it. We can't wrap our mind around all of it. But Lord, I pray that it would, as we meditate upon this chapter, as we meditate upon the victory that you have won, as we meditate upon how you have saved us, as we meditate upon how you are preparing this place and, and that you are calling us to an eternity with you, Lord, that it would drive us to worship. That it would drive us to obedience in a way that nothing else does. Father, I pray, Lord, if there's one here that has never, never put their trust in you, if there's one here who has never made that commitment to you, none that ha one that has not accepted the gift, that they would hear also the warning this morning. Lord, and that they would run to you for shelter and for salvation. Father, we pray all of this in the holy name of God.